Hi, welcome to the New Rules Podcast. I am your host, Ruth Cooper-Dixon, and I'm a positive psychology practitioner. New Rules is about how leaders, entrepreneurs, and businesses must change, break, and rewrite the rules to innovate in our ever-changing and complex world. Each episode, I'll be joined by a guest who is a leader and respected expert in their own industry to talk about their experiences through the lens of a positive psychology theme. I am fascinated as to how these topics are interwoven in the fabric of their journey. And of course, I get them to dig deep and share with you the good, the bad and the ugly. Hello and welcome back to New Rules. I am joined today by James Somaru and James is the founder of Somex, which is a health tech agency and supports the best health tech companies in the world. He covers health tech for Forbes as a contributor and also hosts the Health Tech Podcast, which has listeners in over 100 countries, of which I'm a new listener, so I have subscribed, I am listening. He is an anaesthetics and ICU doctor by training, held roles in leadership management and innovation at NHS England, Health Education England and the British Medical Journal, and previously directed two health tech accelerators. Uh, not only that, he has degrees in medicine, biomedical sciences and education and is a guest lecturer on health tech innovation and the entrepreneurship at academic institutions around the world. Wow. Okay. That's an outrageous introduction. That is like <laughs> that's like the brainiest introduction I think I've ever heard. You've done your research. Oh, yeah. That's great. I like to know. I like to know my guests mm. fully. Um, thank you, James, for spending some time with me today to You're very chat. welcome. Happy to be here. And... As you know, with New Rules, we're talking about positive psychology themes and more importantly, how they influence uh, workplaces and industries and leadership. And especially the idea behind New Rules is that in this year, particularly 2020, a lot's been thrown up in the air. Some organisations like yourself and what you're doing um, have been on this trajectory for some time. Others are just new to the party, but basically it's finding our way. And we're going to be talking about spirituality, which is a pretty big topic. It's pretty broad. <laughs> pretty broad. Let's dive in. Yeah, let's just dive straight in. <laughs> so, um, okay, so talk to me a little bit about I guess what spirituality means to you, first of all, mm. as an individual? Mm. It's, a, it's a good question. It's a big question. I think my kind of journey through spirituality kind of it hit me in my kind of early 20s, I suppose, when I didn't really ever have, I guess, a framework, you'd call it. I didn't really know why I was doing what I was doing. I was a doctor at the time, working as an anaesthetist, and I just lacked... I suppose, meaning. And that seems really strange for a doctor to say that. Mm. But I didn't know what the end goal was and it didn't feel like I was being true to myself. And I kind of went on this inward journey of what I would probably call spirituality. I suppose another way would be just discovering your own self-awareness mm. and, and that kind of thing. But tried to figure out what what I really stood for. Like, why didn't, what, why do I pick up trash on the off the floor and put it in the bin why do i do that i have this compulsion to do it but why mm. and is it cooler not to do it do i want to be the cool person or do I, like but no i want to be the person that does that stuff mm. i want to i want to do good for the world i want to help people i'm motivated by all these different things and so i ended up just exploring that 
essentially. Mm. And that was my journey through spirituality is why do I want to do that? And and what is my framework? And I, I basically figured out through calling it lots of different things from karma to, I don't know, loads of different ways of, yeah. of trying to justify why I wanted to be a good person of just figuring out, well, if I do lots of good things out in the world, if I make life better for people, then you know, on a real scientific kind of level, well, they're having a better day. They're less likely to be annoyed. They're less likely to have a go at someone. They're less, li- less likely to be distracted and fall over. Like, put out good vibes, right? And that's what's going to come back and that's mm. what you're going to flood the world with. And I think that's where it all started for me with spirituality is figuring out that actually that is my framework. My framework is to be nice to people and do nice things for the world and make the world a better place. And that makes it also nicer for me to live in at the same time. Um, I like the idea of, of a framework because I think there are so many people who don't even get to that point and um to think about what is their meaning and purpose which again is a is very linked to spirituality Mm. and also is a big huge question but like i like the fact you've also alluded to um is it just more about self-awareness and i think just hearing you go through um very much a, a career path that is involved you know lots of education obviously to become a doctor and then you work through that hierarchy process of being a, a junior doctor and then is it a registrar is that yeah, right I was a reg for two weeks yeah. so so um it's not uncommon I guess for people to get to a certain point in a I guess a, a career path which is you know if you're a, a lawyer a doctor a teacher and you get to a certain point and then go oh hang on a minute like is this it what am I doing this for or you know I've been so hell-bent on getting to this end goal and even though you're even though what you were doing as a doctor is for the you know inherently the good and saving people's lives and making people well and you know being in healthcare, it can lack meaning if it's not I guess resonating with your your soul it (laughs) it wasn't my truth and I think that was the thing right because I got to I got to a good level I was a practicing anaesthetist I was doing lists on my own I had achieved what lots and lots of people wanted to achieve but ultimately it wasn't making me happy I was looking at the future going well anaesthetics is quite samey at the best of the times it's it should be samey if it's not something's going badly wrong um, <laughs> and you're kind of trained in what goes wrong so really you're just meant to be sat there for the whole time you're not really mm. meant to be doing much so you find that a lot of anaesthetists think about this stuff. You find a lot of anaesthetists are the ones that tend to do other things and get involved in other things. But I think when I was afforded the time to just sit through those operations and play with my phone and, and think about stuff, my mind would turn to how do I improve things? How, you know, I'd think about things like, why is it just, why am I sat here? Why am why me that costs, you know, hundreds of thousands to train? Why am I sat here watching this? Could somebody else be doing this? Could I be using my skills elsewhere? Is there a different model here? Mm. You know, in Australia, for example, they do one anaesthetist to multiple theatres. We don't do that in the UK. It's one-to-one. And they have, you know, practitioners that sit in. So I'd think about all these different things. And I'd, I'd then think about technology. I was, you know, geek growing up. I love tech. I love computers. I love gaming, like all that stuff. I know I you love younger. gaming. Oh, yeah. Love it. <laughs> and so, you know, I'd think, I'd think about things like if I'm sat here watching this operation and this patient... All it really is, delivering an anaesthetic, is just an algorithm in my head. Mm. That's all it is, really. And so I used to think, like, what if what if the anaesthetic machine could see? What if it could hear? What if you could turn all of those into digital signals? What, what if it could do exactly what I do? I give my drugs through it so it learns 
what the patient's doing mm. in, in response to what I do. It, it could learn everything. If you then connect all the anaesthetic machines in the world up, you could have more information about anaesthetics in one second globally than you would through a lifetime of doing anaesthetics individually. And so it was those kind of thoughts that got to me. And it was like, there's got to be a future of healthcare. There's got to be a different way. And so mm. I started looking at this sort of stuff. I started fixing little problems in the hospital using technology. I've just got, I just had a really weird vision of you just walking around with like a little spanner and just being like, hang on a minute, I think I've just got something. I want I've to got do a little tech different. startup that can do something here. Let me just pull it out of my box. Yeah, no, it was it was kind of like that. I mean, it, it, you know, it started really basic. I, it was there are problems in hospitals, right, that are that are really that are really basic to solve. We still use fax machines, for example. I mean, that... <laughs> Sorry. What year are we in? <laughs> right. Right. And it's funny because on one hand, you've got organisations like NHSX releasing these documents about how, how AI is going to come in. Mm. They, they've just thrown 50 million quid into a load of AI companies, right? But on the flip side, we've still got hospitals using fax machines. So it's weird that you've got that juxtaposition. Yeah. And I actually know that from listening to your podcast. Because on this week's Sunday session. It was on this week's Sunday session. It was. <laughs> and I learned that there's over 40 companies. Is that right? Yeah, 42. That, 42. I knew it was something like yeah. that, that have been granted all this money to, to kind of look at different ways they can... Um, support healthcare through tech and this is nhsx i never even heard of nhsx until i started listening to your podcast sort of the innovation wing of the nhs to put it really reductively that they probably won't be a fan of but (laughs) that's basically what they are yeah so when we talk about the future of healthcare alongside technology Mm. and you know you just sort of said there about you're sat there in an operation thinking how can um, a machine do all of this without me sat here so I can do yeah. other things yeah. for the better good but yeah. also this could happen Yeah, is there and this is again probably a really big question but mm. is there a danger then you're going to lose when we talk about spirituality mm. we're talking about connection mm. is a big part of that and I'm guessing part of you know if I was going in for an operation and somebody I mean I probably wouldn't would I ask a question or wouldn't I but you know that whole thing about removing the person-to-person contact and we've learned so much about that from covid where people haven't been able to provide that one-to-one touch the con you know that contact is that going to change things it's a good question and it is something that is it's a question that's asked quite frequently in and around my sector you know health tech health and technology and my answer for it is that i think there was a time where people were so concerned about this but there was enough conversation to make sure that the direction never went such that we were ever heading towards a place where machines did everything and removed Mm. humans the conversation in health tech really is about technology emancipating clinicians from the admin and the things that slow them down to allow them to care because you've got to think what healthcare actually is and what actually is the benefit of being cared for and in a hospital setting or even if someone comes around to your home or when you're ill you want a person to make you feel better you know good doctors get away with murder literally Mm. like literally good doctors get away with murder because they're nice to their patients And that's all people really want. People Mm. want someone that's nice to them. And so if you can free that doctor's time to not have to worry about complex processes, lots of paperwork, admin, 
all those different things, if you can free them from that, that is what technology should do. It should emancipate those clinicians and actually redefine what a clinician actually mm. is. We would end up not picking straight A students, captain of every sports team, academics. You know, we would we'd probably stop picking those people as clinicians and we'd pick people that were more empathic, that would place more emphasis on care. Mm. You know, you didn't want me treating you at two in your morning or your grandma at two in the morning because I didn't want to be there. Yeah. You want people that want to be there, that, that love that care side. And don't get me wrong, I love treating patients. I love that side of it. I was just too plagued by everything else I had to do to ever truly get the joy from seeing patients. And I think, I really do mean this. I think it would be different if the job was so, if the job was different. I was mm. never practicing. I, you know, on my podcast, I have the the pleasure and the honor of talking to so many entrepreneurs yeah. that have been clinicians, all that type of thing. And one phrase that's really stuck with me is, is that somebody said, I left medicine because I was never practicing at the top of my license. Yeah. And that's true. You know, you don't get a CEO of a company like, I don't know, like Marks and Spencers. You don't get them on the shop floor, like yeah. on the tills. But the equivalent is the case in medicine. You've yeah. got these these consultants and registrars and people at the top of their game in medicine doing all their own paperwork, writing up all their own no all their own notes and rushing around answering bleeps. It's strange how we do that. It's how the system's evolved and it's where we are. But I think what we can do for medicine in terms of retention and recruitment of staff would be so much better if we gave them better conditions, if we gave them a better job to actually go to. And for me personally, yes, there are efficiency gains that can be made. There can be money saved. There can be better quality of patient care. But I think really a hu the huge yards would or the hard yards would be in actually making the lives of clinicians actually better through technology by emancipating them to actually put the care back in healthcare. And it's, you know, we think about tech just generally We do, in other sectors outside of healthcare. We don't, there's not many, we've, you know, we've seen with, with um, COVID how many organisations have started to switch to, you know, they're obviously using Zoom or Teams or whatever it is to, to have meetings, but they're not... All they're doing then is flooding their diaries back to back with these exhausted meetings. They're not, it, it's almost like, okay, I'm just going to replace an in-person meeting with a Zoom meeting, but it's it's not the same. And also when we're not, we're not at that place yet, I don't think, or I know we're not at that place yet, whereby there's an involvement around technology integrated into how we work, if, that, if I'm kind of making sense. So instead of just like, oh, I'm usually, and because in, you know, I've been in corporates, um, where you are, you're scheduled back to back meetings. So there's there's no there's no uh, respite between you know getting out in one meeting and going to another internal meeting. You're just running from conference room to conference room, and it's almost like we've just replicated that online, which is even more exhausting. And so it's almost like if you did bring in the tech anyway into something, especially into a huge beast like the NHS. It's also then the cultural side that then takes you can bring all the tech in the world, right? And we've got so many great tools now for businesses to learn how to work. But some of the even more traditional corporates and they still haven't got a clue how to navigate this. Like they're just like, oh, we'll just do everything on Zoom then. But it's not the it's same. Lazy. It is it's lazy it? innovation. Yeah. And I think in healthcare, we see that play out very often. You know, the the best products already exist. The, the products that can revolutionise healthcare, they already exist. You know, one of my old bosses used to say all the time, you know, the future's already here, it's just not very well distributed. And it's true because 
the biggest problem to solve in healthcare, bringing new technology in, is adoption. The classic Silicon Valley phrase is "move fast and break things." Yeah, you don't. You do that in healthcare, people die. I mean, quite yeah. literally. If you go in and break a system, a patient slips through and gets forgotten. They don't get sent a letter. They don't get their chemo four weeks later. You know, that's that's the price you pay for messing yeah. around with systems in healthcare. Yeah. And so. It's always going to be slow to adopt. It's yeah. always going to be a lot more careful, a lot more regulated, based on a lot more evidence. And so you can't just stop. Throw it in. <laughs> yeah, you can't just you can't just yeah. stop, throw something new in, and see what happens. If it's worse, don't worry about it. Go back to the old way, which frankly I can do if I'm ch- using a new system now. And yeah. if it's for comms or if it's for yeah. task management or you know whatever, I can just use a new system for a bit, download a new app on my phone, see if it works. If not, you know, use Google Meets one day, Zoom the next. Yeah. You can't do that in healthcare, no. and I think that is essentially the problem: is adoption, and it's it's figuring out the ways to do that. And and interestingly, coming back to your kind of you know, point about about putting humanity into healthcare. It's actually we see that play out on technology too. The best way to actually get things adopted is to build relationships, and that's humans talking to each other. And so you can't you can't scale something in healthcare like you can scale Zoom and just you know cold email yeah. everybody, and people might click on a link and use it. You got to actually build a relationship with people so that they trust you and and they trust your technology as an entrepreneur. So actually by doing that and and leaning on the human side of what healthcare mm. actually is you can actually start to push the technology agenda forward and and you know when i've run accelerators and giving advice to entrepreneurs and getting involved in that stuff myself to help them the best times that we've achieved success have been when we have took the time to build relationships with what they are which is customers mm. but they're just people they're just people that need a problem solved and so if you can humanize that relationship figure out what the problem actually is for them figure out the reservations that they actually have that they're not going to tell you straight away in an email but if you get to know them they will tell you that you can then customize what you do you can change it to fit them and that's how it has to be it is going to be inevitably slightly slower than other industries but the rewards are so much greater and and that's what the entrepreneurs do it for so when thinking about those entrepreneurs and in particular yourself so when you decided that being a doctor wasn't the right path for you and you had this idea of what your new framework would be what happened then so where did that meaning and purpose lead you so it led me from those times wondering about how to you know completely machine orientate anesthetics to fixing printers and I was doing all sorts of in-between stuff the kind of watershed moment I suppose was when I was doing this ward round on special care, which is neonates, so newborn babies that are premature. And I was doing this ward round, and every mother on this ward round had recently had a baby that might have had an infection. So they the baby had a blood test, and what it's meant to be is 48 hours later they go home. Anyway, it was never 48 hours. It was 72 hours, 80-odd hours, 90 hours. It was days like extra. And I had absolutely no answer for this. And so on one of my days off, I just followed a blood test. I just followed a blood culture, just like what on earth happens to this thing? And so I followed it all around the hospital, figured out that it goes to the lab, but it ends up in a basket. And so if it's during the day, it just gets taken straight out of the basket. If it's overnight, the basket just gets filled with all the stuff overnight because there's nobody in there to just mm. you know, stick it in the machine that, that the 48-hour clock starts. So anyway... I did this project where I ended up shadowing somebody in finance to figure out how to write a business case. She then came to the neonates ward and figured out what was going on with me. We wrote this project together. 
we presented it to you know top levels of the hospital and eventually long story short we wrote this thing which was like lisa blood culture analyzer stick it on the neonates ward and yeah again to cut long story short babies will go home quicker mothers will go home quicker everyone everyone's a winner it was all like yeah 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 great 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 all the way and then the, at the very final hurdle the answer was no but no for a political reason mm. because actually something was changing in the department it was a money orientated thing but even that was interesting to me and so by going on that journey i realized that actually where i get my fuel or my energy to solve problems is these types of things that can make change at scale mm. so it's no longer the one-to-one me treating a patient that yes i'm getting a personal satisfaction from being thanked at a very human level but i know that my potential is to is to change things at scale and that's where i got my fuel so I started then solving different problems, kind of like that, writing more business cases, ended up speaking to technology companies saying, why don't you come in and help me solve this problem? We started doing a bit of software stuff. So I ended up solving problems in the hospital that way. And to cut long story short, made that a career. So I took a couple of years out. I learned the policy. So I worked in policy. That's when I worked at NHS England and Health Education England. So policy came up often as a barrier, but I guess I'm an innovator by nature. So I, I I don't like hearing, oh, it can't be done. That's a problem. I'll be like, no, let me go and figure this out myself and find a way around it. So that's why I learned the policy, which is so useful to learn how the centre works. And by the centre, I mean, you know, government and those arms length body organisations. So learn that stuff. And again, just on the learning curve, right? So I knew that learning was interesting to me and learning I got fuel from. I enjoy learning mm. new things. And so it was then that I had this skill set of I understood technology, I understood clinical medicine, I understood policy. And so it made sense for me to go and join an accelerator, which for those that don't know, is basically a program that helps startup companies. So usually tech companies and the accelerators either take a fee or they take equity from a company, but essentially they give help, support, advice, guidance, contact, all that sort of stuff. So I ran an accelerator for the NHS. Uh, it was called digitalhealth.london it still exists today i think they're on cohort five i was in from cohort one to two uh ran that program helped 60 odd startups get 50 pilots and contracts in the nhs we saved about 48 million pounds for for the nhs in sort of efficiency savings you know 348 sites with a new innovation thanks to that accelerator so we selected the 30 best technology companies out there that were doing something for healthcare. And we just spent a year driving them into the NHS and we did that for, oh, I did that for two years in a row. So that was awesome. Again, I was learning so much. Mm. And then I started to learn about startups and I started to learn about how you grow a startup, what makes a good startup different, what those startups actually need. And so I then started helping out investors because investors would then want my opinion because I was dealing with so many startups. And so the point is I always followed what I enjoyed. I never did anything for any greater purpose at this point. I knew that what I was doing was meaningful. I knew that Mm. what I was doing was helping. I could see it in black and white in metrics, but I Mm. could also feel it at a personal level, albeit not as quickly as, you know, injecting a drug in anesthetics and seeing an effect and seeing pain relief and having people thank you that quickly. But I knew that what I was doing was having a longer term effect. And so started my own accelerator after that, uh, helping out more early stage entrepreneurs, like younger entrepreneurs that were sort of fresh out of a PhD or university that had their first idea, helping them out. And then uh, to touch on something you mentioned before about COVID-19, I was actually raising a venture capital fund. I was raising um, a £40 million VC fund and 
COVID nineteen hit. Well, first Brexit hit and European investment fund pulled out, and then uh, COVID <laughs> and then COVID nineteen hit, and everybody's stock price halved overnight. So there was no money in the system. But by then, I was already writing for Forbes because mm. I enjoyed. And again, the self awareness comes in. I enjoyed having a a non-biased perspective. I enjoyed being in the accelerator role because I could help multiple startups. Mm. I didn't need to back one horse in the race. I could just be part of an organization that just helped the best horses yeah. in, in the race. So I was, you know, I was taking joy from that. We are going to step out to have a mindful moment to reflect on our conversation so far. We are recording this at Fora a tailored workspace that provides its residents with the freedom to choose where and how they work best, understanding that happy, healthy people deliver their best work. Whilst we are here, we'll be sipping on Naughty, Thompson & Scott's alcohol-free, organic, vegan, sparkling Chardonnay, creating a more inclusive and mindful experience to having fun and celebrating our workplace success. So started writing for Forbes because of that non-biased position, started the podcast as well. And just through having conversations with entrepreneurs every week, writing about them in Forbes, communication seemed to be my thing. Mm. I seemed to be good at it. Yeah. And it seemed that lots of people were listening and reading and, and waiting for new things and asking me when the next episodes were out. So I got a bit more regular and the guests started getting better and better. And all of a sudden, from this thing that we started with uh, literally nobody listening for 17 weeks, all of a sudden it just rocketed up. And now, as you say, you know, listeners in 100 countries is like quite wild. Yeah. It's it's cool. And I think it's because, you know, I'm genuinely interested in people. I'm, and I think that comes across in, in the podcast, right? Mm. That I'm so interested in entrepreneurship and I'm so yeah. interested in their journey to it. Because I my favorite question is, how did you actually do that? And I don't like the, oh, it was just lucky. Oh, I was just in the right place at the time. Yeah, but you chose to be in that place yeah. at that time. So tell me about that decision. Yeah. What else did you have on? And then you end up with these stories of like, well, it's funny. I got out of the tube and I went the wrong way and then thought, well, I'm near this conference now, so I might as well jump in. And that's how it led to the thing. Yeah. And it's like, there's a lesson there, which is take your opportunities when they come to you. So that's what I like to do is I try to pull out the lessons for everybody listening to figure out, you know, how can I be an entrepreneur? How can I get involved in health, health tech? You know, what can I learn from these people? And I suppose me having those conversations allows, allows uh, everybody else to get the value, which, again, I enjoy, right? The the fact that you say that communication is your thing made me smile because I remember listening when I was doing my research. Obviously, it's a good interviewer, mm. it does. And I heard one of your one of your Sunday sessions, you were talking about, I don't really like newsletters. I don't subscribe to newsletters, but everyone keeps asking me to <laughs> what I've been reading, what I've been listening to. So I'm going to do this kind of, and what have you called it? It's, a, it's something. It's, it's called health tech pigeon. pigeon. I knew there was a, I was thinking, did I imagine that? No. 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 So and that was just so funny because like, we, at Shams as well, um, one of my businesses, we call it the monthly dose because I, I hate yeah. the word newsletter. Like, yeah. No one wants to see, especially during COVID, totally another. Agree effing newsletter <laughs> so it's just it was just funny like oh, i'm gonna have to do it because everyone keeps asking if it's easier because you you obviously are that and i think that's really important when you're somebody who has the experience you've got from a clinician perspective from a business entrepreneur perspective but you also like to bring those people together and to learn and to share that and it's not always it's not even there's an element of your own yeah that gives me joy and it fills my soul but also it puts stuff out there for everybody else and for to you know for somebody like me who's not from a health 
tech background, you know, just really go, oh, this is actually really interesting from an entrepreneur perspective. And as somebody who runs businesses and somebody who's now moving into more social entrepreneurship. And so that is really interesting to kind of hear those stories and apply those. And I think you're right about with entrepreneurs, there isn't, we, you know, I, I've always said it in the past, oh, it, it's lucky that Champs is where it is and it's, you know, I'm lucky to have these. But actually, when I do go down to it, there's more reasons behind that. There isn't a driver. There are certain stories that have led me to where I am. Yep. And and interestingly, yesterday, I had a conversation with my academic supervisor because we're in the process of publishing my research, my dissertation last year. And uh, she says, you are somebody who... You, you underrate this skill, but this skill is that you're able to connect people and you're also able to see how opportunities can evolve in the future. Like you've always got this eye on the future of how the bigger picture looks when you connect people. And she says, and that's really not a skill set that is a, applauded or seen to be to others. That's a skill, but actually very few people have that. And it made me really think. I just think, I just think that's really important. And I think it's a really good point when it comes to the space that I'm in, when it comes to the health tech space I'm in, because what I've noticed from a communication perspective is that a lot of a lot of what we do in healthcare is behind the closed door. It's in a black box. Yeah. It's very difficult to understand clinical medicine because it has its own culture. It's it's behind the front door of the hospital. It's behind even the back door of the hospital. You know, all yeah. of all of the all of the stuff that goes on at a real nitty gritty level is way back there. It's the same for the way that healthcare investors think of things. It's the same for technology companies. There's a language that means that technology companies and healthcare cannot really talk to each other. It's mm. very difficult. And so you need some crossed experience in order to actually get a decent conversation there. And I remember, you know, even when I first started out, the fact that I could speak tech and the fact that I could speak healthcare, you know, ground floor healthcare as a as a practicing doctor, it gave me credibility in both worlds. And I think that was what was important initially. And I completely agree with what you're saying about it affects or the the ability to see that what what that means for the future if it plays out correctly is a is a good thing. And that and that's why I that's why I do what I do. And I think that's where I get the motivation, mm. which is that when I oil those wheels and I smooth out the communication between all of these different worlds, it creates a better melting pot for these things to happen. I know that so many people that listen to my podcast end up saying, we've changed our idea, we've got a new idea, we're going to start this business because of this. We've we've actually heard from one of our customers on this and we got in touch. And we, and we So I know that what I'm doing is facilitating all of these things to push the sector forwards. And mm -hmm. so at the very least, I know that what is it now 130 episodes or something of the podcast later i know that that is definitely adding value you know i don't actually monetize my podcast at the minute but i know that by putting out good vibes again coming back to you know frameworks and what we talked about at the start i'm putting out good vibes of that thing yeah i know those conversations are valuable to people and that's great that's enough for me right now mm. but i think i think that does come back to me in a good way because i know that the more free it is the more people that are going to see read hear all of that stuff yeah. from me and so when it comes to something like SOMEX, which has clients and your clients that are, you know, startups, funds, accelerators, corporates, people have got enough content out there to hear why I'm good at what I do. And so actually it does come back to me in that way. So, but no, I think, I think the point about, you know, communicating between these different worlds and and, and seeing the future vision of that is, is exactly what motivates me. Mm. And when you said the black box 
for uh, the health, uh, health tech and healthcare is I read years, a couple of years ago now, I heard Matthew Syed speak uh, who wrote Black Box Thinking. Yeah. And that was very much, you know, understanding, like you said, right at the start when we were chatting about, you know, if something goes wrong in it, you can't take it back. If someone dies, that that's it. And that culture of we just cover up mistakes, we, you know, we kind of support each other because it's seen as a really... Obviously, it ultimately is a really bad thing if somebody dies on the operating table, right? So how do you learn from that? How do you create a culture where you can learn and in a way that's safe? But there's also that trade-off, I guess, with the risks. And, and, and how do you do that in a way that is entrepreneurial? Like you say, you can't just do it as if you were... Uh, I mean, even to some cases, we can't do that because we're, we're dealing with mental health and well-being and with people's emotions and feelings. So we have to be really careful, again, about how we facilitate new new types of products and training and support so there is a, a different lens i guess if you were if you were just bringing a product to market there was um i don't know for example a box of chocolates or something yep. you know it's it's a very different process right it's a very different way of looking at it so with all the you know you've spoken to so many entrepreneurs and you've worked with so many entrepreneurs that whole theme of spirituality and meaning and purpose it, are there any themes that come out of that from those people that you have spoken to yeah, it's a good question. And the answer is a resounding yes. And the kind of what brings everybody together, I suppose, in health tech is motivation. And investors talk about this a lot, which is interesting, that when somebody starts a company, one of the important things is looking at their motivation. In fact, the episode coming out today in my podcast, I don't know when this is going to come out, but anyway, is, is with an investor. Yeah. Um, what episode is this? <sighs> Hundred and just so people can look back. God, what would it be? About one hundred and thirty. The okay. story of Chris Degali Ventures is what it will be called. <laughs> okay. um, with Dr. Fiona Patharaja, and Fiona is a doctor by background herself, mm. and so she gets it. She knows. But if investors as a whole will look at the motivations of founders because health tech is hard. As we said before, it's very regulated. It's mm. very difficult. It, it can be very slow. You need a lot of connections. So you need to be firefighting all the time. There's a lot of brick walls to run through every single day. But what you find, what I have found, particularly speaking to, you know, 100 of them, I think you tend to come from a, a couple of different camps. You can come from the patient perspective mm -hmm. there are there are a lot of examples of patient founders where they're so motivated to solve the problem that they encountered that they're just willing to run through all these brick walls and do all these different things because they've experienced it personally the same for a family member and things like that there's also the clinician perspective so clinicians uh, often become entrepreneurs mm -hmm. i've had a, f a lot of those uh, on my podcast too but also there's a really interesting category of like engineers physicists people that can build things that then happen to come across something in healthcare and they're just so astounded by how ridiculous it is, but they have the skills to change it. And I think that's that's a really interesting category. Mm. And so, I mean, someone, one that sticks out, you know, one person I worked out at the second accelerator that I ran, uh, someone called Elena. So she is the founder of a company called Febris and they, well, she, Elena's a, a she's a biomedical scientist she, or biomedical engineer sorry she is a data scientist as well but she worked at the world health organization saw that babies with pneumonia was arguably one of the worst conditions on the planet it's killing more babies than malaria hiv tb combined um 
And so she basically just became so obsessed with solving this problem that she started this company. She actually went and did a PhD just to get a data set to build an algorithm. Um, I mean, that's commitment, right? Right, <laughs> right. I'm not sure how if that's how she'll tell the story, so I might be doing a disservice there. But um, sorry, Eileen, if you're listening. But but that's that's what I took from that. And she did that at Oxford, no less. So, but, you know, insanely talented and in- incredibly motivated to solve this problem that she's now seen babies dying of this thing so she's so motivated to go and, and, and solve the problem and just happens to you know be a biomedical engineer and has done a phd mm. in data science at oxford so now is able to build this company and so there's things like that there's stories like that 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 i get all the time but i think that's what unifies everybody is everybody seems to have this motivation what, what you don't tend to find are people from outside the sector that then just try something in yeah. health tech it's yeah. just it's just not what we have. And I, and what I tend to find is that people are so focused on solving the problem first and foremost that almost the business model comes later. Yeah. It's almost how do I just solve this problem first yeah. and not make billions from it? Yeah. Not to turn into Bezos or anything yeah. like that. People just want to solve the problem and just make the mm. business model work. Make enough that they can pay themselves a bit. Yeah. And, you know go towards exit perhaps if they're venture funded and all the rest of it but i think that tend and, and you know it makes it a nice sector to be part of because people are just genuinely trying to solve the problems it means that they're very much trying to solve the problems and and they are not only motivated but extremely driven as well and when you're in client services that can be challenging but you know what at least at least everybody's pulling in the same direction towards something that we all believe in right so much of that resonates with me because even though the sector that i work in is mental health and well-being although now it's more broadly as a trauma researcher and moving into that field and moving into psychotherapy and more clinician work and social entrepreneurship but actually the reason that I started Shams actually didn't come from me wanting to start a business it wasn't me sitting down going oh I've got this business model I think I might go work in mental health it came from my own breakdown it came from my own experience of shit, we need to be talking about this in workplaces. This was five years ago and no one was talking about mental health at work. No one knew what to do. And I just went around banging my drum for a couple of years, like, hi, is anyone listening to about why you should be talking about mental health at work? And then when about 18 months ago when it became more of a thing we got the royals talking about mental health and everyone's like yeah, we need to talk about mental health it's really important and everyone's like oh gosh you really got into this at the right time I'm like yeah I'm so glad that I had a really serious meltdown in my chief exec's office back in 2015 and yeah and I was off work and you know got diagnosed with several anxiety disorders yeah it's, it's been great and I'm still on medication <laughs> so you know it, it's, it was such a great time to launch that business but it didn't come from that right that wasn't the story and I think when you know and for me the whole point of starting Champs for Change which is only just a year old and I've got my first really big speaking engagement that came out yesterday for this Saturday and I've done a pilot project which is actually in essence my new PhD um, and doctorate supervisor said so when in my interview or the program leader said, so basically you're doing a clinical trial and I told him this work I was doing and I thought I was going to get in trouble because I wasn't technically part of a university and I kind of went, I'm just going to own this and said yes. And he went, he thought it was bloody brilliant. It's like, <laughs> I just love the fact you're doing that as a hobby. Like who does that? But, but like you say, it's when you've got that passion for solving a problem and when you want to help others and when it comes from actually there are, people out there that I see that people that would really help people so I saw with women who've been 
experienced domestic abuse, who've survived that, who've got through their crisis, but actually no one gives a shit about what happens to them next. There's nothing there for them to kind of help them grow and, you know, change their life and move forward. I was like, hang on a minute, we need some extra support around that. And no one was doing that and no one is doing that really. And for me, that was, you know, there's lots of great charities and organisations that do it at the start, but nobody does that once somebody's set up and they've got their life, I guess, together to some degree. But trauma, as you know, takes years to play out and the self lack of self-esteem, empowerment, all of that good stuff. So, yeah, I think it's just really interesting that that comes from, and I guess there is the overlap between where I'm going in the sense of you don't, where I've seen as well businesses and the amount of people, and I know I, I've I know that you've had this as well, where you get people on LinkedIn uh, messaging you directly saying, oh, I really want to do what you do. How do I do it? And I've had, you know, I get to the point where I'm like, well, hang on a minute. This isn't a business for you to just suddenly decide you want to be a part of because you see the dollar signs or the pound signs. It's and, you know, there's a there's a, a, a as we've said and as you said, from all those hundreds of experiences that you've heard and been part of is that. There is a, a reason, there's a bigger meaning to why those people do what they do. And it's not just, oh, I, I like the look of what James is doing. I think I might have a go at that, see if I can make a bit of money. And let's face it, I mean, I don't have loads of cash. No. That's not the point of doing it. No. I started so. my business during lockdown. So, you know. <laughs> so before, let's just chat a little bit then um, bef- before we come to the end about Somex, because I know this is a really mm. new venture for you and I'm really excited to hear about it. So talk to us a little bit about how that has kind of played into, again, your meaning and purpose. Yeah, sure. So I suppose where we are in the story then is is that I've I've kind of figured out by this point that, that communication's my thing. And both as an individual, but also helping others to do it. I think that seems to be a nice sweet spot. And that, you know, I write for Forbes as a contributor. I've got the podcast. And so there were these proof points in my life where I was like... I think you've mentioned both of those. Yeah. <laughs> Keep plugging it. Keep plugging it. But the point... But yeah, my point is that I, I, I never... Re- that, that stuff kind of happened while I was doing all the stuff that I thought I was good at, which was, which again is really interesting mm. to me that kind of... Those things that I wasn't paying any attention to, I just happened to ping off an application and got accepted to write, you know, happened to start the podcast and then it explodes, right? So it was it was at the start of lockdown that I just sort of audited my life and it was like, well, do I really want to spend the next two years raising a venture fund in a time where there's not really going to be any spare money in the system? Or do I want to lean into things that I'm good at? And so, you know, I often audit my to-do list to see what I've left at the bottom and and I take the approach of like that's actually what I don't like doing no matter what I think of myself that's actually what I don't like doing and it was the same for for this so I looked at what I was good at and it seemed to be like all right communication seems to be I came to be seem to killing it in communication so why don't I put the feelers out here and you know it turns out startups were already asking me for advice on this stuff you know can you get me into Forbes but also how do we write a press release what you must see loads of press releases how do we write one and Mm. so you do a podcast how would we do a podcast can you show us how to do it can we pay you to run it for us can you do all the back end for us so the business model just sort of took care of itself Mm. in a way that people were asking for comm support and i would argue so many problems for organizations can be solved for better with better communication and so when you think of a startup communication pretty much oversees everything you know if you're doing an investor pitch that's communication if you're going into a meeting to get a new customer that's about communication you know communication can strengthen you across the board when it comes to being a startup 
and having run two accelerators, I looked at what I was actually doing for those startups, even during the accelerators, most of it was comms, mm. changing their website to more clinical language or indeed changing their website to more technical language yeah. or to more investor language or, you know, framing them differently, positioning, you know, all of this was were, were comms problems to solve. And so I obviously have this huge network of, of corporates, funds, accelerators, particularly startups and entrepreneurs in my in my ecosystem, I suppose you can call it, my network. And so much with the way that I approached life and all the rest of it, it wasn't going to be all take with Somex. It was like, how do I put in the free layer first? What do I want to be giving out through Somex for free mm-hmm. in terms of content and providing value so that everybody can benefit? And then what's the next layer up? So what can I get people to pay for? How can I monetize this? What's actually going to be valuable? And I lean towards over-delivering anyway. It's where I'm comfortable. So what we basically you know, thought about was like, let's put a retainer service together. Let's see what people want. And it's leveled out at two things, really, which is that people want content. So they want video, they want podcasts, they want articles written, they want thought leadership on that perspective. They want also their social media filled. Mm. So from a content perspective, that's what they want. They just want all that taken care of. The problem for most people in the system in health tech is that no matter who you get to try and do that for you, they are not going to understand health tech. No. Because you need to understand healthcare clinically. You need to understand technology deeply. And you need to understand investment extremely well to know how they all think. Now, I've covered all of those off. I do all those things. Mm. And so the team that I've got now and the team that I'm certainly training up to do a lot of this stuff is is going to be well-versed in all those different things. And a lot of that stuff comes through me before it goes out so that those founders can just solve the problem with content and not really have to worry about it. They just get their socials filled, articles written, podcasts done. Yeah. You know, they turn up on a phone call once a week or once every two weeks or indeed a roundtable once a month. We generate all the content straight out of that for the whole month. So, or week. So that's what we do on the content side and the sides media, right? So press releases, getting people, getting other people to talk about you is important. And it's not just press releases. I mean, it's getting less and less relevant to have an article in the Times. Yeah. It's just less, you need to be your own production company. Yeah. Pretty much. People need to know you, you need to build brand that way. That's what's going to bring people in. Um. You know, a lot of people that I follow, people like Gary Vaynerchuk, people like that, you know, talk about this all the time of like, do you really want to be the organization that's that's sending cold emails and putting people into a funnel? Yeah. Or do you want to sit there and build brand and make them come to you? Yeah. And the way that I build brand and always have done from a personal perspective and a business perspective is not through any kind of tactics or anything like that. It's just deliver what you say you're going to deliver and deliver it well mm. and build a brand on delivery. And actually that is enough. And that's who we bring into Somex. We bring in we bring in best in class that are aligned with that. They don't want to do any weird tactics to game it and try and win. Yeah. They are actually the best companies in the space that want to talk about what they do extremely well. I had a, a new biz call this morning with a brand new client we've onboarded and it was wonderful. They are literally one of the best biotech startups in the entire world. They've just raised 30 million quid to go and solve this incredible problem that will do an awesome amount for the space but you know i spoke to the ceo and he was just very proudly saying it's an easy job for you this will be the i'll be the best and worst client you've ever had he said because (laughs) we've got we've got literally the best hires on the planet into this company and so it really shouldn't be difficult for you to do a good job for us but i'm watching so (laughs) best and worst client you've ever had um but look that's we're happy with that that's easy 
That's easy. And that's if, great. If you've got the stuff to deliver, we're, we're happy to deliver it and build the brand for you on that basis. So, yeah, we love that. And that's all happened during lockdown. That's all happened since lockdown. It's brilliant. It's been crazy. We've got eight clients now, uh, building out a team of six at the moment. It's... Um, yeah, it all happened very quickly since I lent into communication. So, <laughs> Well, there you go. And I think also that's part of it when you find, going back to our very start of our conversation, when you find your meaning purpose, when you have that framework, I think those, and I'm talking to another guest on uh, on flow and creativity, but when you're in that flow state, when you're putting that out there, as you said, that karma, if you like, but when you're doing that stuff, and I love that hack of, looking at your to-do list and finding what's at the bottom and it's so important right that's yeah. what you actually don't like doing yeah so whatever impression you have of yourself as yeah. whether you think you're the media guy or whether you think you're the diy girl or whatever <laughs> if it's at the bottom of your to-do list at the end of lockdown you actually don't like yeah. doing that so change your impression think, of yourself i think there is a few things like that that i've learned and having a team i've you know in the last probably in the last year i've learned to have a team around me where actually I know what things I'm really good at but also what I'm really enjoy doing yeah. and the stuff that I'm actually why am I even slogging my guts with this when it's not bringing me any joy it's certainly not bringing the team any joy because I'll leave it till the last minute and the, you know it's not benefiting the client 100% um, so yeah I think just you when you find that when you find that flow and when you find your meaning and purpose from that it's it makes things almost it, and that's where people go you're lucky or you You're have not this and this. It's effort. It, it's effort. it, it seems it's effort. But and let me tell you as well, it's also a moving target. Yeah. It's, in... it's also the, the acknowledgement that that genuinely moves as a target. Yeah. And whatever impression you have of yourself, whatever you like doing today, you might not actually yeah. like doing tomorrow. And so to let go of, of any of any kind of longstanding impression you have of yourself or the, the, the view of yourself that you like the world to see or whatever it is, you can't hold on to that. No. Because... <laughs> I've been everything. I've been I've been a doctor. I've been an innovator. <laughs> James Horner has been everything. I've been you know, everything. <laughs> like, and I'd love to say that I was the investor or the this or the that. I've just, I, I, it's just chaos. Like, I don't know what. I, I had this huge crisis of identity when I left medicine because you go from like being a doctor to being yeah. like someone who left medicine. Like that's just a that's a identity crisis and that really hurt me. But then. I learned to let go of it. Mm. I just learned to let go of it. And now it's given me that that has given me the freedom to then go and pursue what I want. So then getting, gaining that self-awareness and learning what I enjoy, not being tied to any preconceived idea of myself, that as a combination gives me the freedom to just mm. do whatever I want to do. You know, I was watching a series on Netflix the other day. Piers Morgan was talking to some like inmates, like real deep conversations about like their, their motivations and their frameworks and that sort of stuff. I said to Jess, like, my partner at home, I just said, uh, like, I'd love to do that next. Like, I'd be really good at that. Asking them, like, why did you actually do that? Yeah. What was actually going through your mind? And so might do that next. Well, I? do you know, as part of my as part of my practical play clinician hours, when I start next year, I've actually said I'm going I'm going into prison. Like that is one of my that's Incredibly interesting. where I want to go. Incredibly interesting. So, James, thank you for your time. I've had a really great conversation. It's been really lovely having awesome. an opportunity to chat with you. And we've been sipping our Thompson Scott Naughty. Which, I know, right? How have you found it? Have you enjoyed it? Absolutely glorious. It is, isn't it? It's quite a nice treat for a uh, for a Wednesday morning, being <laughs> it 0% vegan sparkling wine, which is just fantastic. And... No, I really appreciate your time. I know how super busy you are, but all the work you do is absolutely fantastic. And I know that I'm saying that because I am 
just being very genuine when I say that as well, Thank having you. listened to the podcast. So you'll be able to check out James and his work, where you can find him on Forbes, Somex, everywhere else. His podcast um, is all in the description below. And uh, look forward to everybody joining soon for the next episode of New Rules. Thank you. Thanks very much. Sadly, we have no more time to chat, bringing us to the close of this week's episode of New Rules. I hope you have enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed chatting to our wonderful guests. If you did, then please ensure you subscribe, rate and review from wherever you get your podcast and you won't miss out on the next episode. All the information from today's show, including our guest details, can be found in the podcast notes. A huge thank you to the lovely people at Fora, who without their generosity, the magic of this podcast would not have happened. Finally, you can find me, your host, Ruth.CooperDixon on Instagram and Ruthie Coops on Twitter. Please do come by and connect if you're keen to know more about positive psychology and my well-being work at Shamps and Shamps for Change.